Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. Me and Joanne got the Christmas tree this weekend, and now she saw some at Whole Foods, and I'm like, I'm not getting a Christmas tree at Whole Foods. So I go to I go to Home Depot, and I check them out at first. And I've always gotten a Douglas fir in the last few years. So I asked the guy who's outside, who I'm assuming works in the tree area, I said, do you have any Douglas firs? And he says to me, I don't know. I don't know what we got. What we have, we have. So I'm thinking, okay, this is great. But the price was good. So I go back the next day. We go to get the tree, and we have to get a balsam fir. And I buy a six to seven foot tree because basically we have eight foot ceilings. So I get up to pay for it, and they charge me for a seven to eight foot tree. And I'm like, you must have made a mistake because I got this from the area. And the lady says, no, it's a yellow tag. So I go, I'm not going to complain. It's a Christmas tree. It's 10 bucks different. No big deal. But then I'm thinking, if Home Depot's doing this to everybody, they're making profit if they're buying trees that are six to seven foot and charging seven to eight. And I asked the guys putting on the car, I said, do you think this is a seven to foot eight tree? And they're like, no. I got home. I stood next to it. Joanne took a picture. I tweeted to Home Depot and they never got back to me. So I'm a little irritated. Anyway, we have the tree up and it looks great. And we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's a writer, producer, director, five-time, I believe. I'm pretty sure five-time Emmy winner, and my guest is Rob Burnett. How you doing, Rob? Uh, very good. Just got back from Whole Foods, got my tree. I'm all set. I didn't hear the beginning of your show, but I'm, my tree is perfect. <laughs> i got to ask you, have you had in the last six months, have you had any customer service that just sucked? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all have. It's it's amazing because what you realize is that they they're gonna win. You know what I mean? Because they're just there. They're answering phones all day. They've got all. This is what they do. You know what I'm saying? This is they they have all the time in the world. They can just run the clock out on you, and eventually you're gonna give up. That's my experience. Now I gotta ask you. You know, you you're you're a North Jersey guy, I believe. I grew up in Cherry Hill. I believe you grew up in Caldwell. Am I right? So you're a Jersey guy, and you end up getting into the writing game. When you were a kid, what was your career aspirations? I mean, and going to high school, did you know you wanted to be a writer and get into entertainment? Or what was what were you thinking in your teens going into high school years? I did. I'm one of those people that had uh, kind of early, early knowledge, early passion, and with that, early anxiety of, of how to get from point A to point B. But I, yes, I always always wanted to, to, to be in, in show business, uh, comedy, I loved. Uh, my father was a, a dentist in New Jersey. I had absolutely no contact whatsoever with show business. I had no idea how to get into it at all. Uh, but I, I had a strong desire from, from honestly, for, for as, uh, as long as I could remember. Now, you said you had, you had a desire. How did you make a game plan? Did you... Did you go to college for entertainment or writing, or how did you start your path to, you know, your, which is a very lucrative... So adorable, so adorable that you think I had a game plan. I really appreciate that. That's, that's really nice. Here, here was my game plan. So I, I, I went to Tufts University, uh, which was just terrific, but I didn't really know how that was going to get me to where I needed to be. Uh, I did a little... A little. I was never really in the theater crowd there. We had some amazing people when I was at Tufts. Hank Azaria was there. 
Um, Oliver Platt was there, but I never was involved in that kind of theater cut. Although, I, it's funny, I did my senior year, I took a creative writing, a uh, playwriting class, and, and you had to, we wrote a scene, and you had to get one of the acting students uh, to read the scene, and Hank Azaria, who some guy I didn't know, he did my scene. And, and it was phenomenal. And I just thought, oh, I'm a genius. But as it turned out, he, he was actually actually the genius because whatever you write, if Hank Azaria does it, it's fantastic. So that was about my only, my only step towards show business in college. And then I made the move. I decided, well, you've got to go to Los Angeles. So when I graduated from Tufts, I loaded up my car with all my worldly possessions and drove my aging Malibu Classic Chevrolet to Los Angeles and said, here I am, let's go. Now, where was your first apartment? Because I lived in L.A. for 18 years, and I tell people I lived in Hollywood, behind Hollywood and Highland, when there was nothing there, and I paid three eighty-five for a studio, which probably now is like 1800 Where did you first move when you went to L.A.? So glad you asked this question. So I show up in, in I don't know anybody there. Uh, first night, I stayed in a travel lodge next to a 7-Eleven. I bought a thing uh, for 50 bucks. You could buy a bunch of uh, available apartment addresses, and I went and started looking. And my first apartment in Los Angeles, I don't remember the rent, but, but it, could, it, it had to be the lowest possible rent available. It was the Westwood Village Apartments, which was in West L.A., and literally the 405 and the 10 met in my living room. They literally was, my my apartment was on the fourth floor, also known as freeway level, and for the entire time I lived in Los Angeles, all you heard was the whooshing of automobiles and 18-wheelers. It was tremendous. So, I, I lived in Westwood for a while, too. I know, and it's so tra- there's so much traffic. People don't even know. It's crazy. So, now, what did you do when you got to L.A.? What were you trying to pursue? Well, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I started trying to, to write uh, magazine articles or just write things. And in the meantime, I, I had a series of jobs. The, 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 the top of the heap for my jobs was uh, I, I was working at... Um, 72 Market Street, which was Dudley Moore's restaurant. And at first I was a busboy working lunches. Uh, and then I got fired as a busboy uh, simply because I was not a good busboy. It was a completely justified firing. I had no idea. It was, a hard, it was, it was a much harder job than I ever thought it would be. But when I got fired, I walked over to the manager. I could see him bristling as the man he just fired uh, was coming toward him. And I said, hey, I just really wanted to thank you for the experience. It was fantastic. And then I ended up getting a job. As, as a result of that, he thought I was such a nice guy. He then gave me what I consider to be a better job, uh, back by the bathrooms, I would have to stand back there and tell jokes to people that were waiting to use the restroom. We called it, I didn't make the name up, I wish I had, they called it the Matra P, thank you. And this is what I did for for a great while in Los Angeles, and loved it, by the way, it was fantastic. Now, were you making any leeway towards your career when you are telling these jokes, and were you using your own material? Uh, I would use, I would use, yeah, well, the answer to the first question is no, I was not making any leeway, any headway whatsoever, um, and I, I, 
a lot of times kind of came down to to, to reading uh, like trivia questions or you know just you know kind of joking on the fly with people. Here's my best story from that period of time, and this is this sounds made up, but it's absolutely true. It was one night a guy comes in. He's really obnoxious. He's he's had a few cocktails. And, he, and I'm asking trivia questions of the group to, to everyone's delight. And then all of a sudden he says, if you, uh, if you can give me the, the name of the seven actors in The Magnificent Seven before I leave my dinner, I'll give you $100. And you can ask anybody you want. This is before Google, of course. Right. So I said, okay, great. So believe it or not, James Coburn, who was in The Magnificent Seven, enters the restaurant and sits down. It's, like, uh, incredible. I'm like, this is fantastic. And, and by the way, the guy has spotted me six. It's, it's, I have to name the seventh guy in the Magnificent Seven. So my busboy friends are working with me now, and I say, you got to just keep giving James Coburn a lot of water so he needs to use the bathroom. And eventually, the plan works, and James Coburn comes to the, my, my area, my, my, my house, and I say, Mr. Coburn, this is fantastic. There's a man over there that's offering me $100 if I can name the seventh <laughs> guy from the Magnificent Seven. And I reel off the six that he's given me. And James Coburn looks at me and he says, oh, yeah, I can't remember that guy's name. <laughs> so, even James Coburn could not remember the seventh guy from the Magnificent Seven. And there went my $100. But now do you know now who the seventh guy was? Yes, I, I, I forget. It's a name that no one, I think only his family knows who it is. Yes, I should I should know it off the top of my head, but I don't. Um, I just know that it was, a, it was a costly evening for me. But anyway, it was fun. The restaurant was great. There were a lot of famous people in there. It was, it was fun to be in. But I, I kind of quickly realized this is no, this is probably not happening for me. So I decided to come back home to New Jersey, and I thought, well, as long as I'm kind of going to pursue this writing career that I didn't know how to go about it, I might as well get, a, I guess, a little bit more of a real job. So I took a job at um, a regional newspaper. At the time, it was called the Herald News. I don't know if you heard of it. I think now it's called the North Jersey News. Okay. Um, and I, I was an editorial assistant at this newspaper, uh, trying to write my spare time, and that lasted for some months. But I kind of quickly decided that this was not the kind of writing that I was interested in. And at a low point in my life, I uh, broke my ankle severely playing basketball with my friends. And the paper was sold. So I was sort of laid off, kind of chose to be laid off. And I'm in my bedroom, laid up in my parents' house with really no prospects whatsoever, uh, and, and and as a young man, you know, deciding how am I going to make my way in this world, I was sitting there and, and I decided, you know what, I, I love the David Letterman show. I'm going to send in a writing submission and see if I can become a writer on the David Letterman show. Um, so I did. I put together a writing submission. I sent it in. And amazingly, and this has very little to do with the quality of my writing submissions and everything to do with the quality of the human that is a man named Steve O'Donnell, who's the head writer at the time. He called me on the phone, which is just mind-boggling to imagine, and said, hey, I got your writing submission. We don't have any writing jobs, but there are interns. 
internships. Um, and I applied for an internship and, and got it and went to went to work uh, about a year out of college at, at the David Letterman Show. Now, what did the being an intern entail when you had that position? Um, you know, it's it, it absolutely, um, you know, I, I worked in the talent department, which was the area that booked the guests. It was, you know, essentially being a secretary, uh, answering phones. It was all low-level stuff. But what was really interesting for me is that up until this point of my life, I think I always just managed to do enough to get by. I mean, I, you know, had the wits about me to get into Tufts University and all that. So I, I always did, did kind of enough, but I never really, I don't know if I'd ever really excelled at anything. And when I got to the Letterman show, the minute I walked into those doors, something clicked in my brain. I just thought, I can't believe that I'm in this place. This is, this is where I want and need and belong to be. So I, literally was the first one in that office and the last one to leave every day. No task too small. Um, I, again, nothing, you know, not accomplishing anything uh, amazing, but I just did everything with intense seriousness as if my life depended on it. Uh, and, then, and then, honestly, got extremely lucky because the, the talent assistant, who was the lowest level position, uh, this, this woman got promoted, and and I was literally sitting at this desk, and and I got hired um, on staff uh, at a at a pretty quick. It was almost a joke around the office how quickly I got hired. But again, it was yet another example of dumb luck uh, in my favor. So you got hired as a talent assistant. Yes, I was hired as a talent assistant. Um, you know, just doing very basic things, and then one of the writers a guy named Larry Jacobson, super talented writer. Uh, I told you know him that I had designs on becoming a writer, and he hooked me up with a comedian named Will Schreiner, and I would write jokes and send them to Will, and if Will used one of my jokes, he would send me $25, uh, which I found thrilling, quite frankly. In fact, the first joke... Strangely, the first joke that I ever got on television was not on the David Letterman show, but it was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Will Schreiner was a guest on the show. I had written a joke. Um, Will, Will was doing panel sitting next to Johnny. He does the, my little joke. Johnny, you know, politely giggles and says, that's funny. And this moment for me still may be the highlight of my life. I'm in Brooklyn with my roommates, high-fiving, you know, Johnny Carson thinks I'm funny. I mean, I grew up watching that show and, and to hear words that I had come up with uttered on that set, on that show, and have Johnny respond to them pretty much, you know, turn my body inside out. It was, it was just, it was crazy. Well, it would, because, you know, I talk about it, you know, we're, we're the same age, we're on the same age, and, and Carson was so big, and when I did stand-up comedy, you know, everyone wanted to get on Carson, and a few of my good friends, you know, one of my dear friends, Jeff Martyr, got on Carson when he was 21, and got couch, mm -hmm. and that's huge, and people mm. now don't know the magnitude of your first time getting couch, or even if it's a joke and Johnny's saying it's funny, because that was what everyone aspired for. They said the Carson show. So that must have been a great, that must have shown that you had talent. So how did you sit there and get from writing for Will to eventually getting on staff as a writer with David? So I, 
I continued to write jokes for, for Will Schreiner, and then it actually at some point, I pretty early in that, I actually set up a meeting with, with Dave himself and just said, you know, I am writing jokes for Will Schreiner. I hope that's okay. Like I, didn't, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing anything wrong by doing that, and to my surprise and delight, they said, no, no, that's fine, but, you know, uh, if you want to submit jokes for me, that you know, please do, which was incredible. So I began submitting monologue jokes. While I was not a writer on the show, I would, I would slip some monologue jokes in, um, which, which, by the way, was not an overall strong suit of mine, I think, in retrospect, but, um, you know, there are guys... You know, guys like Larry Jakes and these two guys, Will Holland and Barry, and Bill Sheff, Jerry Mulligan, these were the guys that really could, could do that job. But nonetheless, it was uh, the door creaked open, and, um, and, and I started writing jokes and eventually got, got a few on. And then finally, at that time in the show, the writing staff was immovable. There, there were, it was the same writing staff for about six years. No one left. And finally, um, somebody left, and and it's funny. There was all these. You make a writing submission, and I did that, and, and it, you know, hundreds of you know, it's crazy. And I was told that it came down to three, three. There were three finalists, and and one was a, a kid named Boyd Hale, who was a copywriter from Oklahoma. I was the second, and the third was Conan O'Brien. Um, and, and Boyd Hale got the job, so, which was hilarious, and Conan, I think, is still upset to this day, which is very funny, because I think things worked out just fine for, uh, as it turns out, one of the funniest men on the planet, but I did, uh, I did get the next writing job, but they, they told me that they really liked my submission, and it was, they kind of indicated to me that I would, I would get the next opening, which, which I then did, which Now, what would your day entail as a writer? Because, you know, sitcom writers, and you also have gone into that, so you know the difference. You know, they're in a writer's room a lot, but you have to churn out entertainment for a late-night show every night. What would your day be like? What time would it start, and what time would it end? Um, it changed over the years, but back in the beginning when I started, our day started at 10 o'clock. Um, we'd all get together... The head, you know, the, the, the Letterman show at that time was very structured where Steve O'Donnell, who was just a super genius, he was the head writer. Everything we did went through Steve, and then Steve was the conduit to Dave. So it was kind of like a, a, a pyramid of sorts. The, the exception to that was the monologue, actually. That, that stuff went straight to Dave outside of the head writer. That was sort of like the, like the field goal unit in a sense. But we would all show up um, at 10 o'clock. We'd have a meeting. We'd come up with top 10 topics, things like that. We'd talk about, you know, kind of the news of the day, you know, what, what's kind of worth talking about, what's making, you know, what's, what's, you know, kind of good fodder for the day. And then it really depended a lot on the situation. There were times where we had urgent, desperate needs for a piece we were doing on that day's show that was short on jokes, but then there was also assignments that might be, you know, three weeks out, 
And then there was some time where you were just sitting in your office or maybe with another writer or two just coming up with stuff, you know. So you just were constantly, you were constantly writing, um, you know. I guess I would, I would say it's sort of in three different forms, either something very, de- you know, not desperate, well, sometimes, sometimes desperate, urgent, uh, day of, or, and then other times it could be an assignment that was a few weeks out, and then there was other times where you were just coming up with stuff for any time. Just, yeah, and that was the most fun, was just it was things that you think would be fun to do on the show, you know, whenever. Now, as you're writing and you're going through the career and you're working for David, when do you start really feeling that you got to know David's voice, where if you wrote a joke, you know, or if you ever got to this point, you know he would like it, or if you wrote a joke, that he might not like it. Did that ever come to a point, and how long did that take you? Well, that's kind of, that, 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 that's really the, the issue of, the hardest thing about working for shows like these is that you have to get the voice of the host, um, you have to get the parameters of the show, and at the same time, you're writing in, in a, you're playing in a, in a sandbox, so to speak, that, that many others have been in and are playing in currently. So the trick, not the trick, but the, 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 the goal is to get something that the host is going to like, but also something that is new, you know? And those two things are tricky, right? So it's taking that voice and applying it in a, in a new way. And I think you... You, you get it kind of quickly and never at the same time. You know, the thing about the, the, a show like this that I think is great in terms of your development, especially for me as a young you know, guy in his early 20s starting to write there, is that often you're, when you're off doing something, you're, you're writing and you know that there are 10, 12 other people writing the exact same thing. You know, so, so take like a top 10 topic, you know, if you're writing top 10 jokes, uh, you kind of quickly realize that there's no real glory in writing the obvious joke that six other people are also going to write. So you're constantly pushing yourself to get, to give up that first take, second take, third take. And yeah, it takes some time and, and there's weird idiosyncrasies. You start to learn, you know, oh, Dave likes the word ham and he likes the word pants, but he... He, you know, he'll, he won't say Oscars, but he'll say Academy Awards. Like, there's just things like that that you start to, you know, you just start to amass over time, I guess. So as you're writing, you eventually move up to head writer. How, how did that happen? What was the path? Because, as I see, you weren't that writing that long before you came head writer. What, a few, five, four years, maybe? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a surprise and a, and a shock to me. I, um... Yeah, let's see. So I was 25 when I became a writer on the show. It was February of 88. And then what happened was we used to do these remotes where every uh, Monday we weren't taping. This was back at late night at NBC. So on Mondays we would go out with the camera crew and shoot those, you know, those pieces where Dave would, you know, go out and about. And then you would edit those all week and they would air on Friday. Um, And at one point, um, Dave decided that one of the writers should be in charge of those pieces. So I became in charge of those pieces a year before I became head writer. And I guess if I kind of look at my career at the show, that 
those remotes were probably the thing that were most natural for me. You know, there was something, there was a, it was a, there was something about, um, I just found them exhilarating, I guess is the quick way to say it. You know, to go out, to go out with a camera crew and the funniest guy in the world and you go and shoot stuff and then you get to edit it and to make the best three and a half minute piece you can make, that just seemed like comedy heaven. So I had done that for a year. Um, I think I had a fair amount of success during that time. And then Steve O'Donnell, who had been head writer for about eight years, which is something that I is indescribable to me that someone could do that job for eight years to the level that he did it. I mean, th- this guy was as good as as I've ever seen politically, managerially, all of it. Um, I think it just got to the point where you know he needed to, to try something else, uh, and they. Honestly, they just called me in on a Thursday and said, okay, you're going to be the head writer on Monday. I was 29 years old. Uh, I had no idea what I was in for. In fact, I showed up on Monday, and I honestly had no idea even what the head writer did crazily because the way the show was structured, the head writer was kind of doing his own thing, you know, and I didn't know, and I had to quickly learn what that job was, and it was... It was difficult and intimidating. I remember at the beginning of my time uh, not being very successful uh, when I first started being head writer because I think I was I was tentative. It was hard, you know. I'm in a group of uh, I'm in a room with uh, great comedy writers, and suddenly, you know, I'm the one that has to kind of be the you know the judge and jury of, of ideas and 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 such. And, and it was it was it was difficult up until the point where I decided I, I have to just step up and, and do my thing, otherwise I'm going to fail. So when you're head writer, you basically have the final say-so of what you're going to take to David, or how does that work? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's all, you know, you're, 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 you're looking at all the material, but you're also, you're rewriting a lot of material, you're writing material yourself, um, but you're also directing the whole, you're really driving the ship in a, in a big way. I mean, it is the it is the creative position on the show, and I think that goes back to the origins of when Meryl Marco was head writer and creating the show, you know, alongside Dave, and then certainly Steve O'Donnell. So, you know, you're you're there, kind of deciding, hey, we need more of this and less of that, and these desk pieces. But ultimately, of course, Dave is the you know is, is the ultimate arbiter, but you have a lot of control. Of, of what's being generated, and then you bring it into him, and then you know you learn quickly if you're if you're moving the ship in the right direction. Now, was it hard for you to let's say gain Dave's trust as a head writer? Because as you said, Steve had been there for eight years, so they probably just it was probably just like a pitcher thrown to his catcher that he loves. You know, just that he knows how to get in the groove. Yeah. Was it hard in the beginning for you, and how long did it take you to really feel that your guys' relationship was working very smooth and that he trusted you and you trusted him? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, not only Steve, but, you know, it started with Mel, Marco, who, you know, was also a, a, a ridiculous genius. I never worked 
directly with Meryl. I was just starting there as she was starting to leave. I kind of knew her, only, you know, she was nice enough to say hi to a low-level person in the hallway. But she she was was an unbelievably funny person as well. And then you moved from her to Steve, uh, who, so, it, it, you know, this was, it, it was kind of like getting to that, you know, after Ruth and Garrick, you know, right. it just felt like, oh boy, this is going to be trouble. And I remember kind of a moment that was very key to me. Dave was understandably hard on me when I first started. I think, you know, his confidence probably wasn't there in me, I think rightfully so. And I was very tentative. And I remember a day that really sticks in my mind where we were down in rehearsal and Dave was kind of on a schedule that that just clicked along no matter what was going on. So at that time, we would rehearse from 2.30 to 4. And at 4 o'clock, Dave would leave rehearsal to, to go prepare uh, to, to, for the 5.30 taping. And there was one day, I remember, I, I can't exactly place where this was. It was probably a couple of months in uh, uh, of my head writer uh, tenure. And we had kind of two ideas, and Dave hadn't really approved either. We were kind of rehearsing. It was a bit of a mess, or a total mess. And Dave left the, it was 4 o'clock, and Dave left, because that's what he did. And the whole crew, the director, the producer, everyone's looking at me, like, what? what's, Gonna ha- no one knew it was going to be on the show in an hour and a half. So I went upstairs and I went to Dave's office and I remember saying, um, so what should we be doing? And he turned to me and he looked at me very sternly and said, this is supposed to work the other way around and turned and walked away. And this was a big moment for me because I realized he's right. I'm the head writer. I'm supposed to be telling him what we're doing. I shouldn't be asking him what we were doing. And this was a big turning point for me. And I kind of decided at that moment that if I'm going to fail, then I'm going to fail full, and I'm going to kind of go all the way. And I think from that moment, I just started saying, look, this is what we're doing. And pretty quickly thereafter, Dave and I gained a really strong working relationship. This was the last year at, uh, at NBC uh, and then into the first year at CBS. Um, and that was a really, that was, that was a, a pretty big time um, for us. And we, we, were, we were very, it was a really, it was a really nice partnership at, at, at that point. Now, was it hard when you did, you went from NBC to CBS? Because I know like Larry Bud Melman, you could no longer use. You had to go by Calvin DeForest. You had to go to different things. Was that hard as a writer? Because you had certain things that were established, and suddenly you couldn't use them. Well, it was it was hard and 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 a gift at the same time because you know we had been in Studio Six A in Rockefeller Plaza for a lot of years. So the idea of being in a new place with new possibilities uh, that was really exciting. It was definitely different. I think one of the big differences was the size of the theater. Um, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, 6A sat about 160 or so, and, and, and the outside of the theater, I think, seats 461. It's just a big, it's a bigger space, and the requirements are bigger, and the move from 1230 to 1130 
was also a huge deal. In retrospect, it all seems like, well, of course they was going to succeed at the time. We didn't know. You know, we didn't know what, what, what to expect. But I think one of the big advantages of the Ed Sullivan Theater, um, and I think and I think Hal Gurney gets a lot of credit for that location, um, I think a lot of the advantage was it's the fact that we were on street level. So those side doors, which inside baseball we used to call the Bill Murray doors because on the first show Bill Murray came out through those doors, but to the end of the show we referred to them as the Bill Murray doors. You, you know, inside you're doing a TV show and then you open up those Bill Murray doors and there's 53rd Street and there's Rupert at the deli and there's Nujabar and Sirajul, the two guys that worked at the gift shop and, and there's the, the New York City is right out there. So suddenly uh, there were a lot of brand new possibilities for all of us. Well, now, as you're writing for Letterman, I know you, uh, I believe you were involved in when he hosted the Academy Awards, which to me, I still think he was a great host, and I've argued with people. I thought he was great. Did, did you have anything to do with, do you want to buy a monkey or Oprah Uma? Did you have anything to do with that? Um, I did not. Uh, I was not involved with, did you want to buy a monkey? Um, I wrote uh, the Uma Oprah joke. Um, I've been asked to leave show business, but I refused. Um, you know, it's funny the way that came about. To be honest with you, it was right before the show. Dave was looking at the monologue. He was a little um, insecure about it, I think. He felt like he needed something. And the actual joke was uh, Uma, Oprah, Oprah, Uma, have you two met Keanu? That, that was, and, and it's barely a joke. It was really just kind of something to, to sort of do. And as I recall, it actually kind of got a laugh the first time. Um, and then Dave kind of, kind of kept going back to it. Um, I think some of the problem, honestly, for him is that he couldn't find Oprah and Uma. He didn't know where they were. So that, I think, threw him a little bit. But... I don't know. It, it is what it, it is. What it is. I, I thought Dave did a really nice job hosting the show. I think it was a little. There was a lot going on there. I, I think that the fact that he was a TV guy, an outsider, he was making fun of people, maybe in a way that that, that they're not perfectly ready for on that night. I, I, I don't know. It, 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 it and, and I think also the expectations were so incredibly high that I think anything less than a Grand Slam home run created this kind of, you know, super negative response, but, you know, I, I don't know, I, I take my, respons my responsibility um, for it as much as anybody else. It, it just, uh, it was what it was. Now, you're writing for him, and then you, you switch, you parlay into TV shows. When did you start deciding you wanted to, you know, you created Bonnie, you created Ed later. When did you start to think that you wanted to get into that, that area of comedy? Well, you know, I, I had done a lot for the Late Show at that point, and um, I think I just wanted to kind of write things that maybe were. So I met Bonnie, uh, we hit it off, and uh, I, I moved to California briefly to, to do the Bonnie Hunt Show. This was 1995. Uh, that unfortunately did not did not work. I came back to the show. Oh, I'm sorry, I heard some feedback there. Um, I came back to the show, and then 
and then uh, when I came back, I actually talked to John Depperman, who is uh, one of the writers there who I written a lot of stuff with and I said you know I feel like I learned a bunch being there we should we should write a show together and we began writing Ed this was in uh, wrote shortly after 1990 somewhere in 1995 we, we wrote Ed actually as a half hour single camera uh, and then CBS was going to do it and HBO was our partner our production partner and then in 1996 um, Robert Morton, the executive producer of the show, left, um, and I was asked to come back as the executive producer. So we put we put Ed on hold, and I asked John to be the head writer of the show, and he and I kind of you know worked together there. And we the show was ha- having a little bit of a rough time during that period. That was you know 1995 was when Leno passed us in the ratings, and this, this, every it was around the Academy Awards. It was all this. The show seemed to be in a little bit of a, a little bit of a rough spot, um, and and you know we kind of rededicated ourselves to, to the show and and uh, put Ed aside, uh, and then and then the show righted itself. Although we never really we never really caught Leno in the ratings, but we did go on to win I don't know four or five Emmys in a row, which was really nice. Um, and then finally, a couple of years later, John and I then went off and did. Uh, the pilot of Ed, first for CBS, they passed on it, we got it back, and then a year later did it for NBC, they, and they picked up, now we were doing it as an hour show, and it ended up getting on the air um, in, in 2000. It was a fairly long gestation process for that show. Now, you said you were you came back as the executive producer on Letterman. What would, what are the differences between being an executive producer and a head writer? What does your job entail being the executive producer? Well, to be honest with you, it changed a lot when I took that job. Originally, up until that point, there was kind of a, a line of demarcation at the show where the executive producer was largely in charge of uh, kind of the staff, the salaries, um, the talent department, the, the, the booking of guests. I, I think I, I, so. The, the executive producer before me was Robert Morton, and he came from the talent department, he was uh, the segment producer on the show and uh, a tremendous segment producer, really just great with, you know, helping prepare the interviews and stuff like that. So I think, you know, when he took over when, uh, from the guy before him, Barry Sand, uh, a lot of his focus was on the guests and making sure the interviews were, were up to snuff and all of that stuff and, and a lot of other kind of global issues, whereas the head writer and Dave were kind of working on the, on the you know, on the comedy and, the, and the, the creative content of the show. When I became head writer, because I didn't come from the talent department, um, I came from the writing side, uh, I continued to oversee the writing and, and, and you know, had, had other responsibilities, um, you know, I guess approving guests and so forth. Um, but I was much more involved in, you know, working with John at the time, John Beckerman, and, and working kind of on the, you know, I would go, when we did the Taco Bell remote, for example, with Dave working the Taco Bell drive through I was there. You know, that in the past, the executive producer wouldn't have gone on something like that. But I, I was still functioning kind of in the in the writing area of the show. It was still the part that I kind of understood and, and knew the best, I think. Now, 
you won some Emmys. When you won the first Emmy, what was the feeling? Well, it was complete and, and utter shock because by this point, you know, everyone, everyone that's ever been nominated for an Emmy will always say, like, oh, and if they win, they'll always say, oh, I never expected to win. Well, the truth is, when you go there, you're hoping to win, no matter what anyone tells you. And in our case, we had been nominated for Emmys. Uh, I think I have, I don't know, 30-plus Emmy nominations, and we would go every year, uh, and we would lose. It, not just once, but often twice or three times. So I, I, I remember distinctly being there, having to be ready to speak if we had won for writing as the head writer, and then at some point having to speak if we would win for show as executive producer, and we never won. I mean, this was, this was going back from the 80s, so I got to the point where I wasn't even flinching. In fact, um, in, in fact, during, this is funny, during the commercial break of the first year that we won, I thought of a joke for an acceptance speech, and I'm like, oh, this is, I think, the perfect joke for, for the room. Um, and so convinced that we wouldn't win that I went to go find Ray Romano because I thought, Ray might win, and this would be a good joke for Ray. So I went to look for Ray, and I kind of couldn't find him in time, and then the commercial was ending, and I came back to my seat, and then we won the Emmy. And it was just, we just thought, well, how did this happen? We've been here for 30 years, and we've never won an Emmy. So then I remember walking, (laughs) walking up to the stage, and all I'm now thinking is, I've had something in my head kind of vaguely prepared for, you know, many, many years, and now I have something in my head that I that I thought of about 15 seconds ago, which you need to go with, um, and of course I went with the one from 15 seconds ago, and I will tell you um, factually, without, I don't mean this immodestly, this is just fact, as a man who watches comedy and has gauged audience reaction, uh, this, this joke killed. Uh, in the room, and I remember the experience really well because I was up there. So the joke was, and it's really a joke more for the room. You have to kind of understand the way that all works. But my, it was a simple little joke. I just said, um, uh, uh, "I think I may have just kissed a seat filler." Right. So what was weird is that the room is so big that when I say this joke, I just think it's dead silent because the room is so big it takes time for the joke to kind of go out and the response to come all the way back. And then I had a little tag, which was, sorry, sir. That was my little follow-up joke. And in that infinitesimal moment, as I say this joke and I hear nothing, I think, oh, I've just bombed in front of 30 million people. But then in the time that I was thinking about, do I double down on 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 the little tag or do I just move on? Suddenly, this thunderous applause comes back, and John Beckerman was joking with me later that I had to fill like they do on sitcoms. Like I had to wait for the last, right. the last to end, and then came back with my little tag. So it was uh, it, it was a lovely little experience. It, it, completely surreal if you're ever in the situation to to be on a stage like that and accept an Emmy. Because what happens is you're standing there, you look out into the crowd, and it's all famous people. So part of your brain is in a complete panic because you're in front of 30 million people having to figure out what to say, and there's another part of your brain that's just like, oh my God, look, there's Jennifer Aniston. It's just it's, it's bizarre, completely 
Now, after you win the first, and after you get the second, you know, does it start getting a little, not tiresome, but you're like, oh, because then you're on a roll, and you're probably expecting it. <laughs> it's funny you say that, because a joke that I made, <laughs> that when we won the, the, uh, the second one, and we all stood up, I just, I remember turning to uh, Maria Pope, one of our producers, and, and jokingly going, oh, not this again. I said, I'm completely, <laughs> I'm completely over it. But, no, I mean, it's, it's the whole, look, show business is ridiculous. We all know that. Awards are utterly ridiculous. You know, winning an Emmy, just, you know, what is it, really? I mean, who, I, I don't even know what, what it is. It's, it's, it's a nice experience. It's a lovely experience to have had that moment. But, you know, it, it, it's all in context after a while. You kind of realize, oh, you know, my, my life is completely unchanged by this. It's not, it's, not quite, it's not quite what everyone thinks it is. I think the reason there's such emotion at, at these award shows for people is that you first experience these award shows when you are not in show business. You know, you're a little kid, you're watching the Academy Awards, or, you know what I mean, you're at home, and it all seems so distant and natural. But by the time you're up there getting an award, like, you've done some things. You know what I mean? So you've already sailed to the horizon. You're not looking at the horizon anymore. So, so it's all a little bit different once you experience it. And I don't mean that in, a, in any kind of cynical or jaded way. It's, it's lovely. It's fantastic. I'm thrilled to have had that experience. And the best thing I'll tell you about my Emmys is that uh, they're all down in Florida with my father in a trophy case that is, you know, centrally featured in his, in, in his room, and they will mean more to him than they can ever possibly mean to me. So for, for that reason, I'm, 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 I feel very lucky to have them. Which is, that's awesome. Now, now you know, we had talked about Ed earlier. What was it like for you going from a TV head writing job to Ed, where you're creator, where I'm sure the days were much longer, and you had the pressure of the network and ratings, whereas with Letterman... You guys knew you were, you know, everyone loved Letterman. I mean, me and my friends all loved Letterman. You knew Letterman wasn't getting canceled. But what was it like when you work as a creator for a show and you already the Bonnie, the Bonnie show didn't go? What was it like when you took over as creator for Ed? Was your were the days longer? Did you feel the pressure from the networks? Did you have to answer more to the networks? Uh, yes, uh, you know, at, at the late show and late night, Dave, we were completely insulated from the network. Dave had such power that the network was really not involved in our lives. Every once in a blue moon, there was maybe a censorship issue or maybe we made fun of a sponsor and they kind of said, oh, hey, we just signed this big deal. Could you not do that? But beyond that, the, the, the network was really not part of our lives. Uh, on Ed, um, yeah, we were, we were working for NBC. Um the one thing that was really nice for me is that I got along very well with the, the, the executives that dealt with our show. They loved our show. And we were also off in Northdale, New Jersey, so we weren't right in their face or, or, or they, they were not in our face. Um, but we had a great relationship um, with, with the executives, Aaron, Aaron Goff and Carolyn Cassidy from the production company. Um, they, they often had good notes. Um, so that part... I don't have any of that, those nightmare, those nightmare stories that people uh, talk about. The workload on Ed um, was something that I, I don't know exactly how to put into words. I think this was largely a fault of 
Ron Beckerman and I, um, we had, we did not quite know how to work well with our writing staff. We had talented people up there, um, but we had just our own very specific vision of things. So we, at least for the first couple of years, largely wrote the scripts ourselves. So you're talking about, you know, a 55-page script every eight days while you're editing a, a, a previous thing, you're, you're casting. Uh, it, it was four years of my life that I wouldn't trade for the world, by the way. I loved it. It was fantastic. It was thrilling. Um, but it was, it was punishing. It, you know, it, it just, it was, it, it, we worked all the time. And, and I don't think there's anything harder than one hour network television. You know, we would start, we would start um, in June, we would, you know, breaking stories, we would start shooting in July, and we delivered the last one usually, you know, by April or May. And I often had to then go back to the late show for that month. And then June, it started again. It was, it was really, really difficult. Now, the show was critically acclaimed, but then it got canceled. What is it like when you have a good product and you know it's a good product because people are telling you, hey, this is a good product, and it gets canceled? Does it piss you off or were you somewhat relieved because you said it was such a taxing work schedule? I guess I had, I've had, I have two experiences on this front. One with Ed, you know, we had done 83 episodes. We were on for four years. Um, by the end of Ed, things were getting a little bit ragged. Um, I, I was required to go back to the late show in the fourth season of Ed. So John and I were trying to run Ed from the Ed Sullivan Theater, which was virtually impossible. Um, so I, I, felt like the quality of the show started to dip, and mostly I felt that I was not living up to my responsibility to the great actors we had, Tom Cavanaugh, Julie Bowen, and on and on. Um, so I, this was a difficult time for me. Um, when they decided to take the show off the air, I was grateful that they, it was a plan. They told us that, that they were going to take it off the air, so I was grateful that we kind of end the story in some way, um, and I guess in some measure, through through some creative means, but also through the circumstances under which we were having to produce that show, you know, while dealing with the Letterman show, uh, I guess I thought it was time. So I was not devastated. I felt like we had done really nice work. I was very proud of the show. Um, and, 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 you know, it was, you know, shows aren't meant to go on forever. I thought we had kind of told our story. The second example I had of this was a show that I did called the Knights of Prosperity that John and I did together. Um, this, this was a little more heartbreaking. Um, interestingly, it was the exact opposite experience of Ed in all ways. With Ed, we snuck on the air uh, at NBC. I remember John and I once during during the during pilot season when everyone was making their pilots. <laughs> we were editing Ed, and we we, were, we looked at this article in I don't know Variety or the Hollywood Reporter, and and Garth Ann Sear, who was in charge of NBC at the time, you know they had the traditional uh, the traditional interview where they talk about all of their development, and Garth literally mentioned 
20 shows in development and did not mention Ed. And it was a very difficult, at that time they were doing a ton of pilots. I think there was, I don't know, 30 pilots being developed. And Ed wasn't even mentioned, so he just thought, oh, well, we have no chance. And yet we got on the air, and and getting back to rating, Ed premiered to, I think, 22 million viewers. I mean, we, we, we were off and running right away. Um, and I think, of, I think of all the pilots, I think we were the only one that was still on the air in, in year two. This other show, The Nice of Prosperity, we had Donald Logue with us, and it was this silly idea um, about a bunch of guys who, um, a bunch of blue-collared guys that decide they're going to help their lives, but they're going to they're rob uh, Mick Jagger. When we pitched the show, it was called Let's Rob Jeff Goldblum, and then Jeff Goldblum became Mick Jagger later in the process. But we went out to L.A., John and I and Donald, and we pitched the show to four networks in two days. And by the time I got on the plane on the way back, we had four offers from networks. I had uh, Peter LaGloria from Fox, uh, and Steve McFear from ABC calling me in my house, telling me why we had to do the show at their network. It was some kind of, you know, strange dream that we were in, people fighting over this show. It was the exact opposite of Ed, which no one cared about. And we ended up going with ABC, and then Mick Jagger came into the picture, and then there was issues with, with Mick, and I like to call him Mick as if I know him, but Mr. Jagger uh, had some issues with the network then, that they were promoting the show using his name too much, blah, 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 we lost the title. It was one thing after another, every failure has a thousand reasons, and before you knew it, um, this show that, that also was critically acclaimed, I mean, we were entertaining with this, so we were the best new show, had no traction, never got an audience, and just limped off the air after the first season. That just felt like a missed opportunity. So that one, that one hurt uh, a bunch. And to the credit of Steve McPherson called me up and said, we blew it. This is, you know, you guys did everything. You guys gave us a great show. We just couldn't find a way to market it and so forth. So, you know, good on him for, for taking responsibility. But nonetheless, that, that cancellation felt like, oh, that's, that's just too bad. So you've had this career in TV, and I know – with Ed and with The Night's Prosperity, I believe you directed four episodes on Ed and one on The Night's Prosperity, which was the Sofia Vergara, I believe, his first series, or one of her first series. Yep. Uh, yeah. You're doing that, and then, then you decide to do The Fundamentals of Caring, which was a movie. What made you decide to do a movie, and then you were taking on directing a movie? It's like, that's a big nut to crack. What made you decide to go and direct a movie? Well, you know, I think for me in my career, I found myself working in longer and longer forms, frankly. You know, I, I wrote so many jokes for The Letterman Show, and The Letterman Show is was was great in, in that, you know, you get to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and it's, and it's thrilling in that old show business way where, you know, you're in the asshole of the theater, and there's costumes, and there's celebrities, and everyone's running around, and it's... You know, you just feel like you're putting on a show, and it's great. At the same time, it's very disposable by definition. You know, one, it's like, uh, the analogy I use is, it's like, it's, it's like mining for, for tissues. You know, like, you're, you're, you're going deep into the earth, and at the end, you have a tissue that you then yeah. wipe your nose with and throw it out, and then the next day, you got to start again. And there's joy and, and greatness in that, believe me, and it's not easy. 
Um, but there's something not lasting about it. So the move to Ed for me was, oh, there's something here that's a little, a little more lasting in, in, in a certain way. I mean, obviously, the Late Show as an entity is a, is a much bigger thing than Ed was or ever will be, and yet there are episodes of Ed that I can put in and show my kids that will move them, you know? And it's hard for me to show them old remotes from the Late Show. They don't, you know, some of them hold up, but they're, it's just a different thing. So my move to movies, I think, for me, was an extension of that. I really wanted to do, hopefully, stuff that will, you know, will last longer, stuff that I can look back on, stuff that exists. And I, and I feel really lucky and happy about the fundamentals of caring because there it is. I have this thing that's on Netflix and, you know, people say, hey, what do you do? And I say, oh, I won't direct a movie. You can go watch it. And then they do and they watch it and then they <laughs> come back and they tell me they love it, even though they may not have, but, it's, you know, people lie because it's show business. That's how we do it. But it's, so I just enjoy the, you know, the idea of trying to make a longer thing. So you've done, you've done, you know, you've won the Emmys, you did a lot of, you know, wrote for Latterman, you head writer, executive producer, you did an hour series, you did a half hour series, yeah, you've written a movie, what are you doing now? What, I mean, is there any other path you want to take, or are you just going to stick to movies, or what do you, what do you see in your future, and what are you working on? Yeah, for the time being, um, movies are, are, are really uh, perfect for me at this moment, and what's fun about it, one of the things that's fun about it for me is that I feel like my move from television to movies has kind of dropped me down a bunch and I have to kind of fight my way back up and I, I like that, you know, so, uh, you know, I kind of know I am where I am, you know, I, I get a lot of scripts sent to me off of Fundamentals, which was really nicely received, um, there's, you know, there's a bunch of projects I have now, I wrote another movie uh, that I'm hoping to shoot in the in the spring. Um, there was a movie that I was supposed to direct this this spring that I, I just actually pulled out of, unfortunately. Um, but I have a meeting tomorrow with people about another movie scripts. Some of them pretty far along. Some of them with big stars attached uh, to, to direct, and and I and I don't always like them. And then there's some that I get that I love that I can't get because there's there's a pecking order of directors, and I'm. You know, I am where I am. I'm, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm in the pecking order. I'm not, you know, I've directed a, a nice movie with, with uh, you know, big stars in it. But, you know, I'm not, more, I'm not uh, Martin Scorsese. So I know that I need another few movies under my belt to try to get better and better projects. Um, but I, I love it. There's, there's nothing, uh, you know, I, I was so lucky with Fundamentals. You know, The Late Show ended, um, and I had shot Fundamentals toward the end of The Late Show. Then I went into editing. And what was miraculous for me is, you know, we were the closing night film of Sundance. We sold the movie to Netflix three days before Sundance. And I'm walking around the Sundance Film Festival having just wrapped up The Letterman Show and that part of my career. And, you know, if you go to Sundance as a director of a film and you're the closing night film, and your film's, you know, playing at the Echo Theater in front of 1,200 people, um, you know, the idea that I was able to have really one of, one of the highlights of my career at that moment, um, you know, was just, I just was so grateful for that, 
So, yes, the short answer is I would like to continue to do movies. You know, maybe I'll get back into some kind of, you know, streaming television type thing. But at the moment, some of this is also personal. I, my two girls have are out of the house now, um, one of whom, by the way, works for the Jimmy Fallon show, which is just adorable for me. She's literally walking the same hall as I was when I was her age, and uh, she's doing her thing there, which is great. But I do have a son who's a junior in high school who I just adore, and I just the idea of going off and doing anything that approaches Ed at this point uh, is just not something I would do for at least uh, the next couple of years. Well, great, man. You know, I'm glad you took the time to talk to me. I said, I love Letterman. Me and my girlfriend, my girlfriend loves Letterman, too. And I remember being in college, you know, we would sit there and we, I went to Stockton State, now Stockton University in New Jersey, and we would always, our freshman year, my one friend would always watch Letterman, we'd always peek our windows in his, you know, at 12.30, he'd open the window when it was warm and we'd just watch, watch through the thing, because we don't feel like going into the dorm. But it was great talking to you. Now, people, go to uh, IMDb and look up Rob Burnett and go, go find his past work. Go watch The Fundamentals of Caring, and it's on Netflix, and I think everybody has Netflix, so check him out. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I think it's RobBurnett1, number one. Please feel free. I do answer I do answer tweets here and there. Uh, so feel free to throw me something or I will write you back. So people follow him. People follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. My website's CooperTalk.net. Send me an email, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And I'll get back here. Tell me what guests you want to see. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm starting to book some athletes. So I'm branching all over. You know, from TV writers to musicians to actors to athletes, finally. Anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.